0: On the last episode of Based on a True Story, we looked at the 1991 film JFK. I thought a great follow-up to that would be learning about the U.S. President who was sworn into office the same day President Kennedy was assassinated. So that's why on today's episode of Based on a True Story, we're going to compare history with the 2016 film LBJ. Just to be clear, it's not like LBJ is a sequel to Oliver Stone's JFK. I just thought it would make sense covering these two episodes back-to-back. LBJ was written by longtime Project Runway producer Joey Heartstone, and it was directed by actor, writer, producer, and director Rob Reiner. Interestingly, both the director of the movie and the man cast to play the lead role of President Lyndon B. Johnson, Woody Harrelson, have both admitted in interviews that they hated the real President Johnson because of his stance on Vietnam. So when the project came up, they decided if they were going to do the movie, they'd have to dig a little deeper than the surface level. The rest, as they say, is history. I'm Dan LeFebvre and this is Based on a True Story. Before starting our story today, there's two things we need to do. If you're a longtime listener, you already know what those are. This is your first time listening to the show. Welcome. The first thing we need to do is to set up our game, two truths and a lie. Here's how it works. I'm about to say three things. Two of them are true, which means one of them is a lie. And it's your job to pick out which one is a lie. Are you ready? Okay, here they are. Number one. LBJ was on board Air Force One while JFK was assassinated. Number two, President Johnson called Bobby Kennedy soon after JFK was assassinated. Number three, LBJ did not seek re-election for a second term. Got him? Okay, now as you're listening to our story today, you'll find the two facts scattered somewhere throughout the episode, and then by a simple process of elimination, you'll be able to find out which one is a lie. And of course, we'll do a recap at the end of the episode to see how well you did. Now, the last thing to do before getting into the meat of our story today is to find out what we'll be covering next week over on the producer's feed. And that would be The Count of Monte Cristo. That's a longtime favorite film of mine, so I must admit it was kind of an excuse to watch it again. I hadn't seen it in a while, but I'm excited to see what sort of historical elements we can chat about from the movie. So you'll get that on the producer's feed next week. If you aren't on the producer's feed, you can get access to that by supporting the show over at basedonatruestorypodcast.com slash support. Once again, that's basedonatruestorypodcast.com slash support. All right, now let's begin our dive into the true story behind the movie, LBJ Our movie today begins on November 22, 1963. Announcer Bob Walker provides voiceover as we see Air Force One on Dallas's Love Field. First to get off the plane is Kim Allen's version of Jackie Kennedy. The crowd gathered nearby cheers. Then it's President John F. Kennedy, who is played by Jeffrey Donovan, who descends from the craft. We also see Woody Harrelson's version of LBJ or Lyndon Baines Johnson on the tarmac. He's there with his wife, Lady Bird Johnson. She's played by Jennifer Jason Lee. As the president and vice president are getting into their motorcade, the movie cuts away to four years earlier. Before we continue, though, I want to point out that here in LBJ, the movie cuts back to November twenty-second, 1963, throughout a lot of the film. However, since we just covered the movie JFK, I won't go Much into the details of President Kennedy's assassination on November 22nd, 1963, as they're depicted in this movie here, because we already covered them there. Oh, and as a quick side note, Lady Bird is not her real name. Her real name was Claudia Alta Johnson, but everyone called her Lady Bird, and since the movie does, that's what I'll call her throughout the podcast as well. So, back to the movie's timeline. Four years earlier would have been 1959. The text on screen tells us we're in the office of the majority leader. Based on the conversation, it's clear that Lyndon Johnson is trying to get people to vote for a farm bill. The farm bill itself isn't that important to the grand scheme of things, but the movie is correct in showing that Lyndon Johnson was the majority leader for the Democratic Party in the U.S. Senate in 1959. For a bit of context, in case you're not familiar with what that means, basically, there are two key political parties in the U.S. government, Republicans and Democrats. There are 100 seats in the Senate, two for each state in the U.S., so when one of those two political parties has 51 or more seats, that party has the majority. The parties then choose who will be the majority leader and minority leader, respectively. As of this recording, the Republican Party has the majority in the U.S. Senate, so a Republican is the majority leader, while a Democrat is the minority leader. In 1959, the Democratic Party had the majority in the Senate, and the Democrat from Texas, Lyndon Johnson, was elected to be the majority leader. Well, he wasn't elected in 1959. He was actually elected to the position in 1955, but he held that position until 1961. So the movie's timeline showing him holding that position in 1959 would be correct. I'm sure it's no surprise that I believe we can learn from history. And that includes my own personal history, too. You know how your phone will remind you of photos that you took on this day a few years ago? Well, I just had one pop up, and it reminded me of a time a few years ago when my daughter and I were heading out on a four-hour drive to a state park. And it couldn't have been more like 10 minutes into the drive when my check engine light turned on and my car just started shaking really, really bad. Needless to say, we ended up spending the rest of the day at the mechanic instead of the park. Not only was that day ruined, but all of a sudden, I had a huge, unexpected bill to figure out how to pay. And I really wish I had known about today's sponsor then, because that would have relieved a lot of stress. Earn In helps alleviate financial anxiety by giving you access to your pay as you work instead of waiting for the next paycheck. You can get up to $100 a day or up to $750 per pay period. Download Earn In today, spelled E-A-R-N-I-N, in the Google Play or Apple App Store. When you download the Earn In app, type in True Story under podcast when you sign up, and it'll really help the show. True Story under podcast. Earn In is a financial technology company, not a bank, subject to your available earnings, daily max, pay period max, and location. See earnin.com slash T-O-S for details. Bank products are issued by Evolve Bank & Trust, member FDIC. Thanks, earn in. And speaking of the movie's timeline, heading back there now. The next bit of text we see says that we're on the Johnson Ranch in Texas. It's still 1959. Lyndon is hunting with Bobby Kennedy. Bobby is played by Michael Stahl David in the movie. As they're hunting, Bobby asks Lyndon if he'd consider supporting his brother for president. Lyndon says, of course, he'll support whomever is nominated. Even if that's you, Bobby asks a bit indignantly. Lyndon turns to him and clarifies, I have no intention of running for president. After this, the movie cuts to a scene where we see a Johnson for president poster hanging up, Even though we see Woody Harrelson's version of Lyndon get upset on the phone with someone for making the poster despite his not having announced, the implication is clear. Then, after Lyndon storms out of the room, we overhear a couple of his men who are wondering why he's so hesitant to announce he's running for president. Is he afraid that people won't vote for him? One asks the other. Lady Bird happens to hear the conversation as she walks by and she responds to the question. He's afraid that people won't love him. The specifics for these scenes are made up from the movie, of course, but the overall concept that Lyndon Johnson was hesitant to announce his candidacy for president is true. It's even true that Bobby Kennedy visited Lyndon Johnson on his ranch to find out if he was going to be running for president. Bobby was the campaign manager for his brother John. But Lyndon wasn't interested in running quite yet. There were others who urged him to run. Probably the most notable of these was a man we see in the movie, Jim Rowe. He's played by Brian Batt in the movie. With the 1960 presidential election around the corner, the people in the Democratic Party were trying to find out who the best nominees would be. In the beginning of 1959, there were six men who were front runners. That would be Stuart Symington, Avril Harriman, Adlai Stevenson, Hubert Humphrey, Lyndon Johnson, and John Kennedy. Unlike some of the others, and against Jim Rowe's insistence, Lyndon remained resolute. He wasn't interested in trying to push for the nomination. However, it's not because he wasn't interested in becoming president. It's because he didn't think he could win the nomination. Another factor for his denying the nomination was that kept people from trying to undermine his leadership. Remember, he was the majority leader. As soon as he announced he was running, he would have a new onslaught of political opponents that he didn't have before. So, rather than try and fail, he believed his best political move was to be patient. Back in the movie, it's July eleventh, 1960. Text on screen tells us we're at the Biltmore Hotel. We can see from signs around the room that there's a debate going on. Lyndon Johnson has decided to announce, and he's alongside the other potential candidates, is this a debate? We don't really see much of what's going on, but later we do see Lyndon and Ladybird watching the results on TV. If you pause the movie on screen, you'll see the results. First ballot 761 to nominate. Johnson, 405. Kennedy, 750. On a second line, we see the others Stevenson, 9.5. Symington, 86. As Lyndon and Ladybird are watching, the screen updates Johnson, 405. Kennedy, 765. Kennedy has won the nomination. This event the movie is showing actually wasn't a debate or anything. It was the 1960 Democratic National Convention. It was held at the Los Angeles Memorial Sports Arena and lasted from July 11th to July 15th. It was, like the movie shows, at the Biltmore Hotel where the politicians and their teams set up temporary offices for the convention. And the end result we saw from the convention in the movie was correct even though those final numbers weren't actually the final numbers, or even all of the numbers. In all, there were 12 candidates who received votes to be the next Democratic candidate for president. As you can probably guess, John F. Kennedy won the ballot with a total of 806 votes. Lyndon Johnson came in second with 409. After him was Stuart Symington with 86 votes, Adlai Stevenson with 79.5 Robert Maynard with 43, Hubert Humphrey with 41, George Smathers with 30, Ross Barnett with 23, Herschel Loveless with two, and last but not least, Pat Brown, Orville Faubus, and Albert Rosalini each had one vote. Going back to the movie, Lyndon and Lady Bird are sleeping when the phone rings. Lady Bird answers it, but immediately wakes up Lyndon. It's John Kennedy, she says, nudging him awake. The scene cuts to Kennedy's campaign office, Bobby Kennedy is there with a bunch of other men as they're busy planning for JFK's campaign. One of Bobby's aides is on the phone. Putting his hand over the mouthpiece, he tells Bobby the media is already calling to find out who his brother is going to choose as his VP candidate. The camera cuts again and we're back in the Johnson's room. After getting hastily dressed, JFK arrives at their room. There's some initial small talk between JFK and LBJ. Then Jeffrey Donovan's version of Kennedy says, do you mind if I ask you a question, Lyndon? Before hearing an answer, the camera cuts again, back to Kennedy's campaign office. Another aide comes up to Bobby. You won't believe where your brother is. A little while later, we don't know how much time has passed, Bobby stops by Johnson's room to try to convince Lyndon that he should not accept. That doesn't make Lyndon very happy, but when pressed, Bobby admits his brother did not ask him to decline. He's there on his own. This is probably true. By that, what I mean is that there are some conflicting reports about what exactly happened. Remember, a lot of this was behind closed doors and not the type of thing that gets documented. There are some reports that Bobby Kennedy went to Johnson's room to try to get him to turn down his brother's offer of the VP nomination. But there's been others who have disputed that. What we do know, though, is that on July 13, 1960, John F. Kennedy won the Democratic nomination for presidency. The next morning at about 10.15 a.m., Kennedy paid a visit to Lyndon Johnson's room and offered him the VP nomination on his ticket. This was done against his brother Bobby's advice and against the advice of a lot of other party leaders. According to a lot of political historians, the reason for JFK asking LBJ to join his presidential campaign had a lot to do with LBJ's influence in the southern states. With JFK from Massachusetts and LBJ being from Texas, they thought that it could be a winning ticket for the presidency. And, as we know from history, they were right. But just barely. There were 66,832,818 votes cast in the 1960 presidential election. John F. Kennedy and Lyndon B. Johnson won that election by a total of 112,827 votes. And... 84 electoral vote. It was one of the closest U.S. presidential races in history. Heading back to the movie, there's a brief moment where we see the now Vice President Johnson talking with a couple of his staffers. There's two of them sitting at a table and Vice President Johnson is sitting, well, he's sitting on a toilet in the adjacent room. The door is wide open as they're talking about strategy. This particular scene may have been made up, but it's something that certainly could have happened. Most historians agree that Lyndon B. Johnson was the most vulgar of all presidents. Not to get too far ahead of the movie's timeline, but when Johnson was president, there's one story of a UN official named Arthur Goldschmidt who was meeting with President Johnson in the Oval Office. All of a sudden, Johnson went to the washroom, proceeded to go number two, shave and shower, the entire time still talking to Goldschmidt as if it were normal. Or there's another story of a reporter who was touring LBJ's ranch in Texas one time. They were outside talking when, all of a sudden, Lyndon just started urinating in front of the reporter. But surprising people by relieving himself in front of them wasn't the only thing that he did. According to people close to him, Johnson invaded the personal space of whomever he was talking to. Unfortunately, that included women. And even though there's never been any official reports of harassment, that doesn't mean it didn't happen. In fact, there are many who claimed it did. Washington Post editor Ben Bradley put it into words once. He explained what it was like to have a conversation with Johnson by saying, You really felt as if a St. Bernard had licked your face for an hour, had pawed you all over. And of course, there was the language. To put it mildly, Lyndon Johnson had the mouth of a sailor. Back in the movie... One of the guys we see Woody Harrelson's version of Vice President Johnson go toe-to-toe with is Richard Jenkins' version of Senator Richard Russell. It starts when LBJ mentions to Senator Russell that Kennedy has a new transport airplane he wants to get made. LBJ offers to help make sure that the Lockheed plant in Atlanta, Georgia can get the contract. That'd be about a billion dollars for Russell's home state, something that he likes. But LBJ insists that Russell has to ensure the plant makes some changes. You see, it's a racially segregated plant. Can't have that while working on a project for President Kennedy, who was pushing for civil rights. Senator Russell is not happy about that. Well, that is true, I couldn't find anything in my research to tie Russell directly to the Lockheed Plant plan. In truth, what happened was that in 1961, Johnson was trying to find a way to start breaking into the racism that flourished in the South. There was an attorney in Atlanta named Robert Troutman who had been getting tons of complaints from the NAACP about a Lockheed plant in Marietta, Georgia. It was the perfect opportunity to get started. Or was it? For their part, the Lockheed Corporation was more than happy to find a way to fix the issue. It wasn't Really, because they were embracing civil rights, but mostly because the complaints from the NAACP were putting their contracts with the federal government at risk. Basically, it risked hurting their bottom line. Before long, Lockheed had removed their white and colored signs and promised that they were starting to hire more black folks. As for Senator Richard Russell, even though I couldn't find any connection to him and the Lockheed contract like the movie implies, The movie is still correct in showing that he heavily favored segregation. In fact, Russell teamed up with Senator Strom Thurmond to write the Declaration of Constitutional Principles in 1956. More informally known as the Southern Manifesto, the basic gist of the document is a statement in opposition of racial integration in public places. It was written as a direct reply to the Supreme Court's ruling in 1954 that segregation in public schools was unconstitutional. There were 19 senators and 82 representatives who showed their support for the Southern Manifesto by signing it. In fact, a majority of southern states in the U.S. had their lawmakers sign it. There were three southern senators who did not sign it, though. Al Gore Sr. from Tennessee, Estes Cafaver, also from Tennessee, and Lyndon Baines Johnson from Texas. Oh, and yes, Al Gore Sr. was the father of Al Gore, the 45th Vice President of the United States. Back in the movie, we cut back to the motorcade in Dallas that fateful day in 1963. There had been a few cuts back up until now, but this time the text on screen lets us know that the motorcade is entering Dealey Plaza. Vice President Johnson is in a car behind President Kennedy's when the shots are fired. A Secret Service man yells, Get down! and shoves LBJ down as the car starts to speed off. In the hospital, LBJ is ushered into a room while the doctors are trying to save President Kennedy. A man enters with the news. Senator Connolly and the president have been shot. Connolly isn't as bad, but the president? It's bad. After a few more moments, another man enters. The president? He's he gone. Then... One of the Secret Service men says it. Mr. President? Lyndon Johnson looks up. He is now President Johnson. As I'm sure you probably already know, that happened. On November 22, 1963, at 12.30 p.m., President John F. Kennedy was shot. Senator John Connolly's seat was in the same car right in front of Kennedy. He was also shot, with one of the bullets that hit Kennedy continuing on and striking Connolly in the back just under his right armpit. The motorcade rushed off to nearby Parkland Memorial Hospital. Once there, doctors tried to save President Kennedy's life. But it was too late. Technically, Vice President Johnson became President Johnson as soon as Kennedy died. But, according to the movie, Lyndon Johnson not only refuses to go back to Washington, D.C. without Jackie Kennedy, but he also calls up Bobby Kennedy. There's a bit of sneakiness going on here in the movie because we see Lyndon Johnson ask someone to take notes during his call, but she can only hear one side of the conversation. So when he's on the phone with Bobby, he manages to get the conversation to a point where it sounds like Bobby is insisting that Lyndon get sworn in there in Dallas. But hearing both sides of the conversation in the movie as viewers, we can tell that Bobby wanted JFK to return to Washington, D.C. in Air Force One as the president as a final act of courtesy for the man. That phone call actually happened, although it's something and we don't really know exactly what was said because Lyndon Johnson and Bobby Kennedy were the only ones who heard both sides of it. That took place at 1.56 p.m. in Dallas or 2.56 p.m. in Washington, D.C. Although that's not where Bobby was. He was in Hickory Hill, New York, having lunch with his wife, Ethel, and meeting with a U.S. attorney there. But the time zone between New York and Washington, D.C. is the same. About 30 minutes earlier, at 2.25 p.m. New York time, Bobby had gotten another call. That call was from J. Edgar Hoover, confirming that President Kennedy, his brother, had been killed. According to a great book by Pulitzer Prize-winning author Robert Caro, The recollections of those witnessing either side of the conversation portray a picture much like what we saw in the movie. By that, what I'm referring to is that Lyndon Johnson seemed to know what he wanted to get out of the conversation, while Bobby Kennedy was so overcome with the shock and grief on the news that he'd heard less than an hour earlier that he couldn't even hardly comprehend the world around him. But, according to those recollections, things seemed to happen like the movie shows, Bobby didn't know what the rush was to have the swearing-in happen in Dallas. He thought it would be nice if JFK's body could fly back to Washington, D.C. as President Kennedy. Johnson apparently disagreed because, as we now know, President Johnson was sworn in on Air Force One in Dallas. According to Judge Sarah Hughes, which the movie is right, was the woman who swore Johnson into office, she recalled that Johnson mentioned Mrs. Kennedy wanted to be present for the swearing-in. When one of the aides went to get her, she said she felt she ought to be there for historical purposes. And so we have that famous photograph by White House photographer Cecil Stoughton. Alongside Johnson was Ladybird Johnson on one side and Jackie Kennedy on the other. She refused to change beforehand, insisting that she still wear the blood-stained clothes that she had been wearing when her husband was killed. As soon as the oath was finished, President Johnson ordered the plane take off and head back to Washington, D.C. Going back to the movie, and back in Washington, we see Senator Richard Russell with a whole group of other congressmen. Senator Russell is all smiles and says something to the effect of, out of a despicable act of assassination, a new leader has emerged. He goes on to say that after 100 years of being treated as inferior, finally we have one of our own as a leader. America has a southern president. That's, well, not really true. For example, Dwight D. Eisenhower was the 34th president. He was the president just before JFK, and Eisenhower was also from Texas, just like LBJ was. But I suppose if you don't count Ike, then there was a long line of presidents who were primarily from northern states. As for whether or not Senator Russell was at the White House soon after LBJ's arrival from Dallas on November 22nd, I couldn't find anything to suggest that he was. Although, there was a group of congressmen who met with Johnson at the White House that afternoon, so it's possible that Russell was among them. However, I doubt it was anything orchestrated by Russell like the movie implies. The purpose of that meeting, as far as I could tell from my research, was to try to get support from both sides of Congress. No matter the party, LBJ wanted to try and convince everyone that there wasn't going to be a change in America's foreign policies after the assassination. To do that, he felt the entire government needed to put on a unified front. Oh, and you know that phrase that LBJ keeps saying to staff members around that White House in the movie? It's different sometimes, but it's always something like, thank you for your service to President Kennedy. I'll need you now more than he ever did. A lot of staffers have recalled LBJ saying that to them, or some variation thereof, soon after the assassination. So it would seem that that was the go-to line for Johnson as he was trying to get everyone to work together. Back in the movie, the next morning after the assassination, we see LBJ walking into the Oval Office. He says he has a meeting at 9.30 a.m., but the staff is still cleaning out Kennedy's things. Then Bobby Kennedy arrives. That didn't take you long. Bobby says to President Johnson as he enters the Oval Office. I was told to use this room, Johnson explains. Just like you were told to take the oath in Dallas, Bobby retorts. The movie does a pretty good job of showcasing really the basic gist of what happened. When LBJ woke up on Saturday, November 23rd, 1963, he was under the impression that he should be working out of the Oval Office. The day before, he'd been working out of an office across the street from the White House, That evening, he'd been told that he would be working out of the Oval Office the next day. But between Friday night and Saturday morning, the National Security Advisor decided that it wasn't a good idea yet because they hadn't gotten everything packed up. So, at about 8 o'clock a.m., he left a note at the Executive Office Building with instructions for Johnson to work out of a different office, but that the Oval Office would be ready for Monday. President Johnson never got that note because he never went to the Executive Office Building, he went straight to the West Wing with the intention that he would be working out of the Oval Office. So, the movie is correct in showing that when LBJ showed up at the White House that morning, he was expecting to work out of the Oval Office. Bobby Kennedy showed up that morning, too, and wasn't too happy that LBJ was moving into the Oval Office so quickly while his brother's possessions were still there. Just like the movie shows, LBJ told Bobby that he was told to work there. And he had been. Even though miscommunications like that are completely understandable, especially when you consider how much chaos there had to be after the assassination, the wounds were too fresh. And considering that Bobby and LBJ didn't really like each other too much before, this little miscommunication didn't help their friendship. Back in the movie, we see President Johnson have what seems to be a change of heart. This gets vocalized in the film when the president walks into where some of his staff are talking about policies— In particular, the Civil Rights Act that Kennedy had proposed is the hot topic. Johnson walks in and tells them that he wants to support the Civil Rights Bill, the entire thing. He continues to tell the story of his personal cook, a black woman named Mrs. Wright. According to the movie, after the assassination, Mrs. Wright was driving back to Washington, D.C. Since she would be passing by LBJ's ranch in Texas anyway, he asked if she would stop to get his dog, Beagle Johnson, and bring him to D.C. Woody Harrelson's version of President Johnson continues, saying that Mrs. Wright respectfully declined his request. She explained that it was tough enough for a black woman to drive through the South by herself, let alone taking care of a dog. He continues, saying that she couldn't find a place to sleep, to eat, or even to use the restroom she had to squat by the side of the road. That story, unfortunately, is true. And it's also true that LBJ found the story to be appalling. Although, in truth, the story was that Zephyr Wright, the president's chef, wasn't coming back to D.C. She was actually driving to Texas. I couldn't find out the exact reason why she was going, but it's probably to get some things as the new president was going to be moving to Washington, D.C. Lady Bird had asked Zephyr to take their dog back to the ranch when she drove down. And just like the movie shows, Zephyr respectfully declined. It's hard enough driving in the South as a black woman, let alone having to take care of a dog. That story brought LBJ to tears and opened his eyes to the importance of public accommodations for everyone. This also lit a fire under him to push for the civil rights bill. And as the movie comes to a close, that is exactly what we see happen. President Johnson addresses the House of Representatives in an address that, as the movie describes it, is both a farewell to President Kennedy but also a proper introduction to President Johnson. The speech in the movie isn't the entire thing, of course, but it sort of bounces around a bit, and it's still pretty close to the overall gist of the real speech. In fact, I think this might be a good time to hear that real speech. This is what's come to be known as the Let Us Continue speech by President Lyndon Baines Johnson, delivered to a joint session of Congress on November 27th 1963.
1: Mr. Speaker, Mr. President, members of the House, members of the Senate, my fellow Americans, all I have I would have given gladly not to be standing here today. The greatest leader of our time has been struck down by the foulest deed of our time. Today, John Fitzgerald Kennedy lives on in the immortal words and works that he left behind. He lives on in the mind and memories of mankind. He lives on in the hearts of his countrymen. No words are sad enough to express our sense of loss. No words are strong enough to express our determination to continue the forward thrust of America that he began. The dream of conquering the vastness of space. The dream of partnership across the Atlantic and across the Pacific as well. The dream of a Peace Corps in less developed nations. The dream of education for all of our children. The dream of jobs for all who seek them and need them the dream of care for our elderly, the dream of an all-out attack on mental illness, and above all, the dream of equal rights for all Americans, whatever their race or color. These and other American dreams have been vitalized by his drive and by his dedication, and now the ideas and the ideals which he so nobly represented must and will be translated into effective action. Under John Kennedy's leadership, this nation has demonstrated that it has the courage to seek peace, and it has the fortitude to risk war. We have proved that we are a good and reliable friend to those who seek peace and freedom. We have shown that we can also be a formidable foe. To those who reject the path of peace and those who seek to impose upon us, are our allies, the yoke of tyranny. This nation will keep its commitments from South Vietnam to West Berlin. ceasing in the search for peace, resourceful in our pursuit of areas of agreement, even with those with whom we differ, and generous and loyal to those who join with us in common cause. In this age when there can be no losers in peace and no victors in war, We must recognize the obligation to match national strength with national restraint. We must be prepared at one and the same time for both the confrontation of power And the limitation of power. We must be ready to defend the national interest and to negotiate the common interest. This is the path that we shall continue to pursue. Those who test our courage will find it strong. And those who seek our friendship will find it honorable. We will demonstrate anew that the strong can be just in the use of strength, and the just can be strong in the defense of justice. And let all know we will extend no special privilege and impose no persecution. We will carry on the fight against poverty and misery and disease and ignorance in other lands and in our own. We will serve all the nation, not one sector or one sector or one group, but all America. Are the United States a united people with a united purpose? Our American unity does not depend upon unanimity. We have differences, but now, as in the past, we can derive from those differences strength, not weakness. Wisdom not despair. Both as a people and a government, we can unite upon a program, a program which is wise and just, enlightened and constructive. For 32 years, Capitol Hill has been my home. I have shared many moments of pride with you, pride in the ability of the Congress of the United States to act, to meet any crisis, to distill from our differences strong programs of national action. An assassin's bullet has thrust upon me the awesome burden of the presidency. I am here today to say I need your help. I cannot bear this burden alone. I need the help. of all Americans in all America. This nation has experienced a profound shock. And in this critical moment, it is our duty, yours and mine, as the government of the United States to do away with uncertainty and doubt and delay and to show that we are capable of decisive action, that from the brutal loss of our leader we will derive not weakness but strength, that we can and will act, and act now. From this chamber of representative government let all the world know, and none misunderstand, that I rededicate this government to the unswerving support of the United Nations. To the honorable and determined execution of our commitments to our allies. (laughs) To the maintenance of military strength second to none. to the defense of the strength and the stability of the dollar, (laughs) to the expansion of our foreign trade, (laughs) to the reinforcement of our programs of mutual assistance and cooperation in Asia and Africa. to our Alliance for Progress in this Hemisphere. On the twentieth day of January in 1961, John F. Kennedy told his countrymen that our national work would not be finished in the first thousand days, nor in the life of this administration nor even, perhaps, in our lifetime on this planet. But he said, let us begin. Today in this moment of new resolve, I would say to all my fellow Americans, let us continue. This is our challenge, not to hesitate, not to pause, not to turn about and linger over this evil moment, but to continue on our course so that we may fulfill the destiny that history has set for us. Our most immediate tasks are here on this hill. First, no memorial oration or eulogy could more eloquently honor President Kennedy's memory than the earliest possible passage of the Civil Rights Bill for which he fought so long. in this country about equal rights. We have talked for a hundred years or more. It is time now to write the next chapter and to write it in the books of law. I urge you again, as I did in 1957 and again in 1960, to enact a civil rights law so that we can move forward to eliminate from this nation every trace of discrimination and oppression that is based upon race or color. There could be no greater source of strength to this nation both at home and abroad. And second, no act of ours could more fittingly continue the work of President Kennedy than the early passage of the tax bill for which he fought all this long year. This is a bill designed to increase our national income and federal revenue and to provide insurance against recession. That bill, if passed without delay, means more security for those now working, more jobs for those now without them, and more incentive for our economy. In short, this is no time for delay. It is a time for action. forward looking action on the pending education bills to help bring the light of learning to every home and hamlet in America, strong forward-looking action on youth employment opportunities, strong forward-looking action on the pending foreign aid bill, making clear that we are not forfeiting our responsibilities to this hemisphere or to the world, nor erasing executive flexibility in the conduct of our foreign affairs and strong, prompt, and forward-looking action on the remaining appropriation bills. In this new spirit of action, the Congress can expect the full cooperation and support of the executive branch, and in particular, I pledge that the expenditures of your government will be administered with the utmost thrift and frugality. I will insist that the government get a dollar's value for a dollar spent. The government will set an example of prudence and economy. This does not mean that we will not meet our unfilled needs or that we will not honor our commitments. We will do both. As one who has long served in both houses of the Congress, I firmly believe in the independence and the integrity of the legislative branch. And I promise you that I shall always respect this. It is deep in the marrow of my bones. With equal firmness, I believe in the capacity and I believe in the ability of the Congress despite the divisions of opinions which characterize our nation, to act, to act wisely, to act vigorously, to act speedily when the need arises. The need is here. The need is now. I ask your help. We meet in grief, but let us also meet in renewed dedication and renewed vigor. Let us meet in action, in tolerance, and in mutual understanding. John Kennedy's death commands what his life conveyed, that America must move forward. The time has come for Americans of all races and creeds and political beliefs to understand and to respect one another. So let us put an end to the teaching and the preaching of hate and evil and violence. turn away from the fanatics of the far left and the far right, from the apostles of bitterness and bigotry, from those defiant of law, and those who pour venom into our nation's bloodstream. the tragedy and the torment of these terrible days will bind us together in new fellowship, making us one people in our hour of sorrow. So let us here highly resolve that John Fitzgerald Kennedy did not live or die in vain. And on this Thanksgiving Eve, as we gather together to ask the Lord's blessing, And give him our thanks. Let us unite in those familiar and cherished words. America, America. God shed his grace on thee. And crown thy good with brotherhood. From sea to shining sea. The movie
0: comes to a close by giving us some final bits of text, so let's fact check those. It starts by saying on July 2nd, 1964, President Johnson realized President Kennedy's dream and signed the Civil Rights Act of 1964 into law. That is true. It might not have happened as fast as President Johnson wanted it to, but the bill was passed. In fact, there's a photo up there of President Johnson signing the bill that day. Behind him, Martin Luther King Jr. watches on. As a fun little fact, the only time Martin Luther King Jr. and Malcolm X met in person happened on March 26, 1964, when they were both in the U.S. Capitol hearing the Civil Rights Act being debated by the Senate. It was a brief meeting, lasting less than one minute. The next bit of text in the movie says that on November 3, 1964, Johnson defeated Senator Barry Goldwater of Arizona for the presidency. Unlike the ticket with JFK as president, with LBJ as vice president, LBJ won his election by winning 44 of the 50 states and receiving 61.6 of the popular vote, making it the largest victory since 1820. That is true. That 1820 election was James Monroe. It was the second term for President Monroe, and for the most part, he didn't have anyone running against him in that election. The only other person to receive an electoral vote was the Secretary of State, John Quincy Adams, a man who would end up becoming the president after Monroe's second term ended in 1825. As for the election in 1964, President Johnson and his running mate, Hubert Humphrey, received 486 electoral votes, while Senator Barry Goldwater and his running mate, William Miller, only received 52. Just like the movie says— LBJ won 44 of the 50 states and had 61.1% of the popular vote. For a bit of comparison between the 1960 and 1964 elections, JFK won the election in 1960 with 34,220,984 votes. That's 49.72% of the popular vote. The Republican candidate who lost that year was Richard Nixon, who had 34,108,184. And 57 votes. As we learned earlier, that's a difference of only 112,827 votes. In the 1964 election, LBJ won with 43,127,041 votes for 61.1%. His opponent had 27,175,754 votes for 38.5%. That's a difference of 15,951,287 votes—quite a bit more than the previous election. The next bit of text explains that in his next term, Johnson passed the Voting Rights Act of 1965 and established programs like Medicare, Medicaid, and Head Start. That's all true, too. While the Civil Rights Act of 1964 was a landmark law The Voting Rights Act of 1965 built on that by prohibiting racial discrimination in the voting process. As for Medicare, Medicaid, and Head Start, those were all part of what historians refer to as Johnson's, quote, war on poverty, end quote. It also included things like food stamps and federally funded programs for secondary education called work-study. The Medicare bill was passed in 1965. Johnson was also responsible for creating a new transportation department, which included the Coast Guard and the FAA, among other departments. That was also in 1965. In 1968, President Johnson signed the Gun Control Act of 1968. This was in response to the assassination of Robert Kennedy, Bobby. That happened in June of 1968, but also because of the assassination of JFK and Martin Luther King Jr., the latter of which also happened in 1968. The last bits of text in the movie explain that toward the end of his term, President Johnson started to get backlash because of his escalation of the war in Vietnam. American deaths were rising and anti-war protests intensified. Then, according to the movie, on March 31, 1968, President Johnson declared on TV that he would not seek nor accept the nomination of the party for another term as president. The final text on screen says that Johnson was the last sitting president to choose not to run for re-election. That is all true. The Vietnam War began in 1955 while President Eisenhower was still in office. When President Kennedy was elected, he escalated things by sending more American troops to the war-torn region. By the time President Kennedy was assassinated, there were about 16,000 troops in Vietnam. He had planned to remove about a 1,000 of those by the end of 1963. When Johnson took office, he reversed that order. Instead, by the end of 1964, there were about 23,000 American troops. In that year alone, U.S. casualties tallied up to 1,278. By June of 1965, there were over 82,000 American troops in Vietnam. Things only kept increasing— and there were over 200,000 American troops deployed to Vietnam by the end of 1965. Things didn't get better in 1966. That year saw over 400,000 U.S. troops in Vietnam. All the while, anti-war protests were growing. People weren't happy with how President Johnson was handling the war by throwing more and more American lives at it. By the summer of 1967, tallies estimated that about 70,000 Americans had died in Vietnam. Still, Johnson was sending more troops, and with a big boost of about 50,000, the total was brought to around 525,000 troops. By the end of 1967, anti-war protests were growing to an all-time high, including over 100,000 people marching outside the Pentagon in October of that year. And so, just like the movie shows, on March 31, 1968, President Johnson addressed the nation. During that speech, which was all about the steps he was prepared to take to halt the war, he announced an immediate halt to the bombing in North Vietnam. Then, at the end of the 40-minute speech, he said this.
1: I have concluded that I should not permit the presidency to become involved in the partisan divisions that are developing in this political year. with America's sons in the field far away, with America's future under challenge right here at home, with our hopes and the world's hopes for peace and the balance every day. I do not believe that I should devote an hour or a day of my time to any personal partisan causes or to any duties other than the awesome duties of this office, the Presidency of your country. Accordingly, I shall not seek and I will not accept the nomination of my party for another term as your President, but let men everywhere Know, however, that a strong and a confident and a vigilant America stands ready tonight to seek an honorable peace, and stands ready tonight to defend an honored cause, whatever the price, whatever the burden, whatever the sacrifice that duty may require. Thank you for listening. Good night, and God bless all of you.
0: This episode of Based on a True Story was written and produced by me, Dan LeFebvre. There's a lot more to the story of President Johnson. We never got to talk about some of the more controversial things that he did, like his own affairs, or... His approval of the FBI's bugging of Martin Luther King Jr. and commenting on his extramarital affairs. If you want to dig deeper into the true stories behind President Johnson, there are two great books that I would recommend starting with. The first is called Lyndon B. Johnson, Portrait of a President by Robert Dalek. The other is actually a multi-volume and super detailed book by Pulitzer Prize-winning author Robert Caro. That series is called The Years of Lyndon Johnson. They're all great, but if you want to get a good insight into the events that we see in the movie's timeline, get the fourth volume, The Passage of Power. As always, I've got links to both of those books as well as plenty more resources to start your own deep dive into the presidency of LBJ over at basedonatruestorypodcast.com. Okay, now it's time for the answer to our two truths and a lie game from the beginning of the episode. As a refresher, here are the two truths and one lie. Number one, LBJ was on board Air Force One while JFK was assassinated. Number two, President Johnson called Bobby Kennedy soon after JFK was assassinated. Number three, LBJ did not seek re-election for a second term. Did you find out which one is a lie? As we learned, President Johnson did call Bobby Kennedy about being sworn in as president soon after his brother was assassinated, so number two is true. We also learned that in March of 1968, President Johnson announced that he had no intention of seeking re-election. So, number three is true. That means the lie is number one. As we also learned, then-Vice President Johnson was in the motorcade when JFK was assassinated on November 22, 1963. In fact, if you want to get into some of the conspiracy side of that, there are some who say that LBJ started ducking from the bullets before they were even fired, indicating that he might have known something ahead of time. Of course, others dispute that. But that brings us to an end of this episode. If you're a base on a True Story producer, I look forward to chatting with you again next Monday when we'll look at some of the true story that we saw in The Count of Monte Cristo. Don't forget you can find all the links for this episode or request a future episode over at Based on a True Story and if you want to get in touch with me, you can find me on Twitter where I'm at dan DanLeFeb, D-A-N-L-E-F-E-B, or you can shoot me an email at dan at basedonatruestorypodcast.com. If I don't hear from you before then, I hope to chat with you again next Monday over on the producer's feed. Until then, thanks so much for listening, and I'll
2: chat with you again really soon.